Amen. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, uh, my name is Zach. I'm the pastor here. Um, and uh, they drew out these uh, programs, bulletins. Um, inside, there's an insert, like they said, place where you can sign up to serve if you want to serve. Um, another thing is our, we call it the Mission Church 101 class that we do. We do this about twice a year. Um, this is coming up on March 1st. And if you are relatively new to our church and you're like, hey, I want um, to know a little bit more about the Mission Church, um, we'd love to have you join us. Child care is provided. Um, lunch is provided. Um, if you're interested in being a member, some of you have been here for quite some time, and you're like, hey, I want to become a member at the Mission Church, please sign up for this class. Um, you can uh, just dial up that link there, um, dial up, type it in, whatever you kids call it these days, um, and you can sign up there on that. Um, and then our connection card, this is just our way of getting to know you a little bit better. Um, there is an online paperless version. You can just use your phone for that. And, um, but we love these uh, because it's our way of knowing how we can be praying for you. So if there's any way we can pray for you, um, please just fill this out. And you can either do it online or you can drop this card. Um, we have a connection card in the back. Um, how is everybody doing today? We are dry. Freezing, but dry. Um, I was laughing, I was talking with a gentleman at Starbucks this morning, because um, you have to have Starbucks on Sunday morning, um, and we were like, well, our, our choices in the month of, well, frankly, pretty much from October to March, it's either um, wet and kind of warm, slash flooding, um, or um, freezing cold and sunny out. So you, you pick your choice. Um, option three is go on vacation to Arizona. That feels good, right? Can I get an amen for vacationing in warm places? Um, but bless you, you're here instead. So thank you. We are in um, the book of John. Um, we uh, are literally just walking through the book of John and teaching on it. The book of John is the story of Jesus's life. And we come to a really interesting passage today, and um, it's kind of like two short sermons in one here um, because of what happens in this text. So um, this is one of those Sundays where you really want to bring your Bible. A little too late for that, I realize, so some of you, that's okay. They have these online Bibles you can look up online, and here's the reason why I say that. Um, If you have your Bibles and you come to John chapter 7, verse 53... It has a very intriguing note to it. Um, Some of you are looking on your Bibles. Anybody see the intriguing note? Just nod your head. Oh, man, you are like in the secret club. Everybody else is like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, So here, I will make known to you the secret. So, it starts like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. So, um, I almost just didn't even include this as part of the sermon because um, maybe we wouldn't even have saw this and been like, oh, let's just keep reading here. I want to pause here and spend some moments asking the question that you might have because you read something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include this passage we're about ready to read. And the question you might have is, huh? Can the Bible be trusted? Like, there, there might be that question, like, huh, th- can, can the Bible be trusted when it says something like this? That the earliest manuscripts actually don't have this, but yet it's in our Bibles. How did it get in there? Interesting. So here's what I want to do for, at a very, very high level, just for the first few moments of this message, is wrestle with this question, um, can we trust the Bible? Can, can we trust this book right here? And I want to um, wrestle with that by asking two different questions. One, um, what does the Bible even say about itself? Like, what, what does this book even say that it is? Um, and then two, how did we even get this Bible? Um, if you have this idea that, like, God one day, like, you know, had this in written form, and then all of a sudden it just, like, fell from the skies, and someone caught it, and we're like, guys, we got the Bible, yeah. that's not what happened at all, 
Um, nor was there like this secret meeting with uh, one of the professors that I love. I had him um, for a class, Tim Mackey. He talks about like this idea that there's a bunch of um, white guys with white beards sitting in a room, like, you know, putting their fingers together and, and, and going, oh, we, we are going to trick everyone with the Bible. Like, that didn't happen. That didn't happen at all. I lost my notes over here. I'm going to go get them. So hold on. Um, and I'm back. Uh, so what does the Bible say about itself? So I'm just going to read two different passages. So this is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's worth noting that the Bible is 66 different books. You have the Old Testament and then the New Testament. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel. And really it's this story about how God has called the nation of Israel to show literally every single nation um, God and their need for God and that salvation comes only from God. Now, thumbs up, thumbs down. How did Israel do on that one? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, yeah. They did just about as good as you would have done. So they didn't do great. And so really, much of the Old Testament is the story of Israel failing to do that But it's also a story about how God says, but just hold on, I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send someone, he's referred to as the Messiah in the Old Testament, I'm going to send a Messiah to do what Israel could not do. Literally, to provide a way of salvation for people to God, because Israel didn't do a really good job of that. And so you have the New Testament, which is the story of this Messiah. And this Messiah had a name, and his name was, the answer is always, Jesus. Is Jesus. And so the New Testament is about Jesus. The first four books are specifically about the life of of Jesus, that he came, he died on the cross, and then he physically rose from the dead, and that all who believe in him will have eternal life. And then after that is, is these letters that are written. And so we come to a letter that a guy named the Apostle Paul wrote, and he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. And uh, Timothy is a pastor of a church. And so this is what Paul says, and he's speaking about Scripture. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But notice that first line. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And so here is the Apostle Paul, his vision, his understanding, his declaration about Scripture is this, that it is the very breath of God. It is the very voice of God. And so when we read this book, we are reading God speaking to us. Um, but yet, this is written, what we're going to find out, this is, this is written by human authors. That 40 some odd authors made up all about 66 different books. And, and so look at what Peter, so this is in Second Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, and he talks about Scripture in this way. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So it's this idea of Peter's going, hey, listen. When you read the Bible and you read these guys speaking, um, prophecy is, you know, speaking words of God. Um, They're not just going up there and they had too much to drink or too much to eat and they're just, you know, you know, we've met people like this. God told me this. And you're like, that's probably not right because that's really weird what you are saying. Has anybody ever come across it? So when you're a pastor, sometimes interesting people will come to your church and tell you what God told them. And you're like, yeah, I don't think so. And, and so Peter is, 
is saying, hey, you need to understand that Scripture is not these guys or gals like getting up and just saying whatever. But rather, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And and, and the picture is this. And here's what we believe about Scripture, and here's what Scripture says about itself. that, That God used human authors, and he divinely inspired them to speak to us. And this shouldn't surprise us because this is what God does over and over again. He uses very human people to show us and reveal himself to us, right? So what scripture says about itself is that This is a divinely inspired word. This is the word of God given to us. Um, So I broke it down into this five different things. Um, How did we get the Bible? Again, I'm so high level. If you want to geek out on this and really just go after this, there's whole books written on this. Um, but a good place to start, since everyone has YouTube, go on YouTube and you can just type in Tim Mackey. He's a PhD. I took a class with him. This guy is just he, PhD in Hebrew and Jewish studies. Um, uh, Tim Mackey, The Making of the Bible. And if you got two hours and 15 minutes, you can listen and watch that. And he just does a whole teaching on the ins and outs of how we got the Bible. And I'm going to do this in way less time. So, so you, can, you can do that. So, five different steps. So, you have step one, revelation. God speaks. And so, we've kind of already talked about this. This is, this is um, the very breath. This is God's word to us. You have step two, inspiration. The Holy Spirit helps authors. Um, Peter says that the Holy Spirit carries them along But the Holy Spirit is speaking through these authors as they write these things down. Now step three, this is where we get nervous, or most people get nervous. And step three is transmission, where scribes, scholars, um, there's a season where monks did this, where they literally hand-wrote copies. So here's, here's where people have problems, and here's where people get nervous, People be like, hey, I would believe in the book of John if I had the original one that he wrote. Like the one that John wrote in his very hand. I would believe what the book of John says if I had the original, right? And we don't. Which, which should not surprise us, right? Um, it should not surprise us about ancient documents that the very first edition still does not exist. So, um, how many of you ever read uh, the Iliad by Homer in high school? How many? Let me phrase it differently. How many of you were supposed to read it? Anybody? Yeah. Some of you. So um, I, we'll look at this in a moment. So he wrote that in 800 BC, long time ago, right? Very long time ago. 800 BC is when he wrote that. Um, the earliest manuscript that we have of Homer's Iliad is in 400 BC. So there's a 400 year gap between the original and the most recent manuscript we have, which should not surprise us because it's not as if Homer wrote the Iliad and said, I'm going to go take this to the printing press. Didn't have a printing press. Nor did he get done writing it and go, you know what I should do? I should spend the next four years making three more copies of this because all they could do was write in hand. And so literally, they had professionals, people who would take the original and make copies of it for distribution. And so this is what happens with Scripture. We need to understand these are ancient documents. These have been around for a really long time. And transmission was the practice, and it was... You need to understand the way that people made copies of the Bible. So here's one example. There's one particular group, um, the Masoretes. They would have the text that they were supposed to 
translate, or do make a copy of for others, and they were not allowed to go word for word. They had to go letter for letter, for letter, for letter. You write a letter, you look back up, write it down. They knew exactly how many words, how many letters, how many paragraphs were in each section. And so they would write it all out. So imagine they write a whole entire page of scripture and they go back and there'd be a chief scribe and and bring it to the chief scribe and and they'd count together. Uh Uh-oh, there's 473 words here and there's 474 on the on the, re- the, the real one. Um, and they don't have whiteout, guys. No whiteout. And no computers for, like, delete or anything like that. So they would just rip it up. You're done. So th- this was the process. So let me just give you a snapshot of ancient documents for a moment. So, y- so you, you get a picture of this. So I already talked about Homer's Iliad. Um, this is 800 B.C. Um, and then the earliest manuscript we have, and it, just fragments of manuscripts, is 400 B.C., so we've got a time gap of about 400 years. No big deal. Um, and then the number of manuscripts that they have is 1,757. That's how many current manuscripts there are of Homer's Iliad, or portions of it. Um, let's go down to, to Pla- the guys that I know, at least. you got Plato. Um, so he w- wrote around 400 BC. Listen to this. So I remember reading all sorts of different stuff by Plato or trying to in college. And the most recent manuscripts that we have of Plato is AD 895. So that's about a 1300 year difference. There's about 210 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts. You can find all this stuff online, by the way. Um, um, let's go down to the Greek New Testament. Um, so this was written A.D. 50 to 100, real tight timeline. The book of John is probably one of the last books of the Bible written, New Testament Bible written, um, somewhere around, I don't know, 80 at the earliest, maybe closer to 90, some would even say close to 100. Um, the earliest document that we have manuscript that we have is actually John chapter 18, guys, Um, and it's as early as AD 130. So the time gap for the New Testament is 40 years between the, the, the copy that the authors wrote themselves, and what would happen is, listen, they would write a copy, and a lot of these were letters to churches. So Paul wrote a letter to Rome, If you read the book of Colossians, it is a letter that Paul writes to the the church in Colossae. If you get to the very end of of the book of Colossians, Paul says, Hey, will you pass this letter on to so-and-so? And And I wrote them a letter, and will you get the letter I wrote to them to... to, You get it from them. And so they would exchange letters. Now you can imagine how they might go missing quite quickly here, right? You only have one copy. This is why when someone asks for the birth certificate of your child because you need a passport or whatever, you don't send them the original. What do you do? You make a copy of it. And so you'd have people who would, this was their job. They'd make copies and more copies, and more copies. And then we got the printing press, and things got way easier. Did they not? And so, um, this is incredible. The number of manuscripts uh, of the New Testament that we have, whether in whole or part, is nearly 6,000. Because you need to understand, this is unheard of. There is no ancient document with more scholarly work done, with more more evidence than the Bible, which is incredible. This is why there's that little note that says the earliest manuscripts don't have it in there because there is so much evidence they can go, hey, some, 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 something happened here. What, what happened? So that is how transmission took place. You guys are staring at me like we are in a classroom. I don't know if that's good or if that's bad. So just if you're with me, just be like, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, if you're not with me, sorry. Um, 
So back to this. Then you have translation um, is the fourth step. Uh, and that's when scholars bring books into other languages. And so um, this is a translation. The Bible was not written originally in English. Shocking. It wasn't. It, um, the Old Testament was written um, primarily in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek, not English. And so you make the translations and translate it into different languages. Um, and, uh, and then you might have a piece. You might ask, why do we, have you ever asked the question, why are there so many different English translations? Sometimes that bothers people. And here's the reason why. Because when you translate something, there's different schools of thought. Um, one school of thought is it should be word for word. Every, for every Greek word, there should be English word or words that flow with it. Um, so I preach from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It is a word for word. Um, and so what happens when you read the ESV, you come to different places where you're like, that sounded a little choppy. Like, I'm not sure that was correct English. I'm pretty sure I would get a C- minus on my paper for the, you know, the English there. It's because it's a word-for-word translation. If you have an NIV, New International Version, that's more of a thought-for-thought. And so they're, they're trying... If you read the NIV, it's a little bit nicer in its translation. The New Living Translation, it's the same thing because it's more thought-for-thought. Then you have the message, um, which is, is called a paraphrase. And uh, the message is in effort to take um, the Bible and put it in modern-day English um, and try and nuance some of the language. So that's why you have different translations. So um, you can brag to all your friends now, you know this. If they have a New Living Translation, you can be like, do you know why you have that? Um, and they would probably say, well, my mom got it for me, or something like that. Um, and you could say, actually, it's more of a, a thought for thought. And use that kind of voice and everything, right? Yeah? Okay. Then you have step five, interpretation. Um, so here, here's what you cannot deny. Well, here's what you can deny um, and people struggle with. So I read Plato. Portions. I read portions of Homer, Homer's Iliad. Never once was there this moment like, oh, like this spiritual awakening. While re- like there might be some intellectual awakening. If this, okay, if this is God's word to us, if it is, you might not believe that it is, but if it is God's word we should expect that God would do something in our hearts. If this is God's word for your life, we should hear it differently than another author who's speaking to you. Namely because God should have more authority over your life than any other really good author that you might be reading. Like, God has more authority than Tom Clancy, okay? God has more, just name your author. And, I, I, you know, I throw that out there, but in all seriousness. So, this is where I go, you know what, I can't, like, I can't prove this. I mean, this is a step of faith to suggest that this book will speak to you and lead you, like, that God will use this as a way to speak to your heart. Like, I can't prove that. But what I can do is I can stand before you and say that I read this book, parts of it every single day, and it has changed my life. It has radically changed my life. Because it tells me about Jesus. And it tells me that Jesus has done something for me and for you. That if we don't have, we're toast. 
And so what I would say to a skeptic, I'd say, that's fair. If you want to be a skeptic, that's fair. But be a good skeptic. Good skeptics say, ah, never mind. I don't believe you. A good skeptic says, okay, why don't you give me a copy? And grab a copy. You can do ESV, you can do NIV, just choose a copy. And I promise you, God will meet you. I promise you. I promise you. So, I think that's part one of the sermon, guys. Um, It's also worth noting that nobody has a higher view of Scripture than Jesus, by the way. Jesus says things like, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law was the first um, five books of the Bible. The prophets was a way to describe everything else that came after the first five books of the Bible. Jesus is literally saying, I have not come to abolish Scripture. I've actually come to fulfill it. Jesus is making a pretty significant claim because he's saying this, this scripture has authority over your life, but he's also saying, I've come to fulfill everything that's in there. And so, back to this passage. Um, was this passage originally included when John wrote this? Um, maybe, maybe not. How's that? I will say uh, you have some early church fathers, like 4th, 5th century, who, who say it was originally in there and it was taken out because some people might use this as a license to commit adultery. You'll read the passage. That's just, you'll see that a little bit. So they'll say it was taken out because of that. Augustine said that. Ambrose said that. Um... There are a lot of current scholars today who are probably correct to say that John probably didn't include this story for a lot of different reasons, um, namely because it doesn't flow with um, the direction he is taking us. Um, But here's what most scholars say. There's no reason to disbelieve that this happened. Like, you're going to read this story and go, this has just got Jesus written all over it. Just, one, he's in it. But, and there's nothing about this passage that betrays, um, betray, betrays any sort of doctrine theologically. And so I'm going to read it. And I love this passage, and I love it. Uh, the very first sermon I preached in... Uh, in a, in a church was this very passage. I didn't include the whole part I talked about there. That was supposed to take me 15 minutes and it didn't. I knew that was going to happen. Um, I love this passage because if you are here and you have the question, do I even need Jesus? This passage will tell you why you do. So I'm going to read it, and we'll walk through it together. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2 says, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. That was the Jewish temple. Um, All the people came to him. So there's, there's crowds of hundreds, if not thousands of people there to listen to Jesus speak and preach. Um, And Jesus sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, um, who are they? Um, They do not like Jesus. They are the religious elite. They are the religious authorities. They're also the judicial authorities, too, for Israel. And they don't like Jesus. um, Because Jesus is saying things like, I'm God. Okay, that, like, that offends people when Jesus says things like, I'm not just any guy, I'm God. I'm the Son of God. And so they brought a woman. Now, okay guys, if you have to, close your eyes. But I want you to let this scene play out in your mind. They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Adultery. 
There's no man there. It's just a woman. That's a problem. But we just pass over that. They just decide to bring the woman. She's committed adultery. And they placed her in the midst. Imagine people are murmuring. The crowd of hundreds is kind of stepping back. What's going on? What, what's that woman doing? What, what? And then they get quiet so that they can hear the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. I wonder if she's been brought from the scene of the crime. If she has, maybe she's barely dressed. Try and get in the head of this woman for a moment. She is in a crowd where, friends, small town here, guys, small town. It's likely that most everybody there knows who she is. And her sin is now put on display. And they bring her before Jesus. And they say, now in the law, Jesus, the law, the Old Testament law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. They literally pick up stones and they would kill They would kill, they would put to death the guilty parties. Even the man, but they didn't bother to get the man. So here's the question. Hey Jesus, what do you say? Side note. They said this to test Jesus that they may have a charge to bring against him. I love this. This is, this is the, I think this is the opening scene of the movie, The Passion of the Christ. They give us this scene. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. What did he write? I don't know. And as they continued to ask him, they continued to ask him. The picture is this. They are pestering Jesus. Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? What are you going to do? We're supposed to kill her. What are you going to do? Everybody is listening in, wondering what Jesus is going to say, what Jesus is going to do. Maybe some people, they grab some stones. They're prepared. They know what the law says. And all of this is going on. You have a woman. Probably weeping. They continued to ask Jesus. And he stood up and he said to them, Okay. Okay. Let him who is without sin among you be the first. To throw a stone at her. Okay, you're, you're right. She has sinned. That's true, we can't deny that. She has sinned. And Jesus says, but haven't all of you sinned too? So if you're without sin, then do it. There's only one person in that group that is without sin. Jesus. Now, I'm going to say something that is quite controversial, but I don't think that you can get Jesus without this. It seems very extreme to you and I, and you could arguably very rightly so, it seems very extreme that what this woman should receive is death. Death for her sin. 
If this rule applied to today in our culture, and frankly, it applies in some cultures today. If this applied in our culture, I mean, wow, right? Wow. Some of you might even be dead. So before we go, that's extreme, let's just move on. That's extreme, no one should die for, for their sin. Let's just move on. What we have here is at least a picture of the power of sin. So here's my controversial statement. Sin has the power of death in your life. In more ways than one. It will put to death your relationships. Didn't we just see that here? I mean, that's exactly what's going on here. Is this woman going to go home and her husband's like, Hey, good to see you, sweetie! No. Her sin has put to death most likely her, her, her marriage. Her sin has most likely put to death her relationship with her closest friends and family members that are in that circle with stones in their hands. And I realize that we're dealing with a sin like adultery, but listen, listen to me. Those of you who are married, you get this. When your, let's just talk about when your spouse sins against you. I know you don't sin against them, so let's just talk for a moment about when they sin against you. When your spouse sins against you, does that bring life to your marriage or does it bring a little bit of death? I've sat in a room with more than a handful of married couples whose marriage is on the rocks and the problem is the same every single time. It's not that we've just grown apart, there's just distance. No, there's sin. And sometimes the sin is way more heavier on one side because there's a pornography addiction. And sometimes the sin is both together because they're so outrageously selfish. And the idea that I'm supposed to serve my spouse seems ridiculous unless they serve me, of course. So I'm just talking marriage here. But, but listen, you get this, don't you? You get this, that when someone sins against you, it does not bring life in that relationship. It brings separation. It even brings death. You sin against your family members. It doesn't bring life. It brings death. Go lie to your coworker. Go lie to your boss. Let me know how that goes for you. Actually, don't. But you get this, right? I think we get this. Okay, yeah. Sin can bring death to relationships. Sin also can bring death internally, too. What do I mean by that? This woman here, there is a kind of death that has taken place in her heart. We would use words like guilt and shame and fear. Those are all words that are connected to death. You were not created to live with shame and to live with guilt, to live with fear. But when you become aware of your sin, that's what happens, doesn't it? I've sat with a number of people, specifically men, who because of sin, that there is a kind of guilt and shame that they feel they literally cannot overcome. And they can't. They can't. So, 
I think most of you here, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you would probably go, okay, logically, I can go, okay, it brings a kind of death relational, okay, it brings a kind of death um, internally, like, okay, I can go there. So here's where I'm going to go next that you may not, not as many people would go to. Sin brings death eternally. It brings death eternally. I was trying to explain this to my kids the other day about how when you sin, or again, when someone sins against you, it really breaks off your relationship with them. I said, did you know that it's the same with God? When you sin and sin against God, and we all have, like, we all have, like, you're, you don't need to hide, okay? We're all there. It breaks off this relationship we have with God. Did you know God created you to be in relationship with you? You were made for that. There's something in all, inside all of us that longs for that relationship with God. You might not know that, but that, that aching you have that even your spouse and even your children and even any amount of success that you have cannot fill, it's because you were made for God. God made you for Him. When we sin against Him, we've committed treason. We said, I don't want you. So there's this distance So what do we do? Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is you can't do anything. You are just as helpless as this woman. But God loves you. Just take that in, okay? Just If there's anything that we start with about God, it's this. God loves you. God loves you. Okay, so just, this wasn't in my notes. You don't even, don't say this out loud. Just say it in your heart. Start in your heart. Just say, God, you love me. Just say that in your heart. Okay, now let's, let's try this on. I've realized that when you say things out loud, it's a lot different than when you say them in, inside. So I just want you to try this on for size. Let's just all say it together. Let's be weird together. Let's just say this out loud. On the count of three, we're going to say, God, you love me. Okay, one, two, three. God, you love me. How much does he love you? Listen to this. Back to the story. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, Again, that that was a term of endearment, by the way. Ma'am, miss, where are they? Has no one condemned you? My kids sometimes will be crying so hard they can't get words out. I wonder if this is one of those moments... She thinks she's going to die, guys. And now she's not. I imagine her fighting to get the words out. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This reminds me of a passage that might be familiar. How much does God love you? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that's Jesus, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, that is, die, but they will have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Your sin has the power to 
put you to death. But Jesus has the power to bring life. He has the power to bring life to that broken marriage that you're in. I've seen it. I've seen couples commit adultery. And because of Jesus, their marriage is at a whole new place. I've seen men and women who are filled with so much fear and then they come to Jesus and they realize, why do I need to fear anymore? I'm forgiven. Your sin separates you from God. But if there's one thing that we can say about God, it's that He loves you. And that He sent His Son... Jesus to save you and forgive you of your sin. I don't want you to feel the condemnation of your sin, but I do want you to feel that your sin is something you need to be saved from. And I love what this says, and we'll close here. This is John in a letter that he writes. John says, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, because that, that'll happen, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's got a name, guys. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. Okay, big theological word that's going to make you smarter. Let's just say it together. Propitiation. Propitiation is a word I can tell my kids I forgive you, right? But that's just forgiveness. Propitiation is not only I forgive you, but it's I forgive you and you actually still have a debt to pay. There's still a debt to pay. Like, I can forgive you, but there's still a debt to pay. Propitiation is that Jesus forgave you, but the only way He could forgive you was to become the debt that you needed to pay. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what we believe. That Jesus... First Peter says this, Jesus Himself, He bore our sins in His body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. This is the message of salvation. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine. Yet, at the very same moment, you are more loved and forgiven in Jesus Christ than you could have ever dared hope. And that's salvation, right there. Someone asks you, what, what, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And it means that Jesus came and died for my sins. And He rose from the dead to conquer sin and conquer death. And that by believing in Him, I'm forgiven and I have eternal life in heaven. Do you know what you have to do to to receive that? Believe. No works, just believe. I want to close us in a time of responding to this. Our worship team's going to come up. And I just want you to have a moment, just with yourself for a moment. Would you, would you close your eyes if that's okay? If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior today, and you're sitting there, and you probably don't have all the answers, but you're going, I... I think I need to trust in Jesus as my Savior. I I want eternal life. And I, I, 
There's something about this Jesus. I think I need him. If that's you, I want to encourage you to just pray something like this. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I believe that you can forgive me. And I believe that you died on the cross to cover all of my sins. I believe that. And I need you, Jesus. And for all of us here, I just want you to sit in that for a moment. This is, this is our God. He loves you. You can have just as much sin as this woman right here and he's still going to say, I don't condemn you. I died for you. I just want you to sit in that and I want you to just take that in. And as you're taking that in, we're going to begin to worship and close our time. And I want to encourage you, if you are a Christian, you know Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to take communion if you feel led. Communion is, Jesus told us to take communion. And he said, whenever you take this little piece of bread, I want you to remember that I, I broke my body on the cross to save you. And then when you take this cup, it's, it's supposed to be a real life, tangible thing that we can taste. And it, it is to remind us that, that Jesus, he bled. That his blood covers over our sins is the picture and he forgives us. And as you feel led, I want to encourage you to take communion. And if you need prayer, some of you need prayer this morning, we're going to have prayer teams over to my right. We would love to pray for you. And maybe you're here and you're like, I, 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 want, to, I, want, to try, I want to take this further. I really want to trust Jesus as my Savior and I, I need help with that. Just go over to one of our prayer teams and they'll walk you through that. But let's take the rest of our time here and just be reminded that God loves you so much. And He showed His love for you by sending His Son, Jesus, to die for you and forgive you.